Good morning again. It is <clears throat> grateful for the opportunity to preach, um, and I appreciate uh, Sean being willing to share the pulpit in that way. Uh, so just really grateful to be able to, to do that this morning. Um, if you're not already, would you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 27? Genesis 27. We're going to be, Lord willing, going through the whole chapter uh, together this morning. And so would you turn to Genesis 27, starting in verse 1 here. So, uh, as I'm always grateful to be able to preach, I realize that uh, as we are all coming from our week, there are many things that I don't know about. There are things that you don't know about me and what is going on in my life. There are things going on in your life that, that I don't know about. Um, and so I want to acknowledge that as we come into this, uh, that our world is dysfunctional. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Um, as we look at things in the news, institutions aren't trusted or worthy of trust in a lot of cases. Sin and hopelessness abound on every page of the news. And we see brokenness and pain and despair everywhere we look. And sometimes we wonder, where is God in all of this? If you're prone to ask this question, this text has something to say to you this morning. But see, that dysfunction just isn't out there in the world. The dysfunction is also close to home, isn't it? We see it in our own families. We have deep-seated hurts from one another. The people closest to us have the most ammo against us, and they can cut the deepest wounds. All families have this experience in some way or another. I want you to take a second. Can you think of a family, an extended family, that there's no strife? There's no problems between any of them. There's no history that would make a stain on relationships. Take a second. When we come into this building, somehow, though we can't think of a family like that, we come in here and we tend to think everyone else has got it all together. That family is perfect. The way that they talk to each other is just amazing. The way that they do X, Y, and Z is great. I wish my family was like that. If my family was like that, we would never have any problems. If we had these resources, if we had this house, if we had whatever. But it's a lie. And if you're prone to believe that lie, this text has something to say to you this morning. So before we dive in, let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us to understand this text. Would you pray with me? Lord, 
would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law? We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So the first thing, when we come to any Bible story or any Bible text, to know it and understand it correctly, we need to understand the context. What has happened before this text? What is happening, going to happen after this text? How does this sit in the Bible? So we're just going to take a few minutes and look at the context. If you've uh, been following with us in Genesis, we've preached from John 20, or Genesis 25, but that was a while ago. So let's just review. Maybe you hold your place here in Genesis 27 and turn back to Genesis 25, verses 21 through 28, which we'll read real briefly. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, and they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when he bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So just a few quick things that we need to understand before we can really get into our text this morning. Number one, before these brothers were born, they were fighting. Before they were born, God declared that the older would serve the younger. Number three, Jacob's favorite was Esau. Rebekah's favorite was Jacob. Number four, Jacob at this time that we're about to go into had already taken the birthright away from Esau, which we saw really recently ago. And number five, we saw last week that Esau's Hittite wives caused his parents misery. So looking up just a few verses before chapter 27, we read, When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This is important context for our story, and we'll return to it later. So as we walk through this text, I want us to see four main characters in this story. Four main characters. We see the sightless father. We see the scheming mother. We see the shifty younger brother and the seething older brother. First, let's look at the first four verses and look at the sightless father together. Look with me in your Bibles, Genesis 27, verse 1. 
When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. So we read about Isaac, the father in this story, that his eyes were dim, or he had trouble seeing. As the text unfolds, we realize he's blind in more than one way. He says he does not know the day of his death, so he thinks he's on his deathbed, which would be a difficult thing to not know the day you're going to die, and we all understand that, and he feels he's close to death, but he really doesn't understand how right he is about not knowing when he's going to die, because it's at least 20 years later that he will actually die. So he's 20 years off. So he's not seeing that very clearly either. Like his son Esau, he's more interested in this situation, in worldly pleasure that a good meal can bring, rather than following the will of the Lord. Surely knowing the Father, the Lord's earlier declaration about his two sons, he decides to bless not the younger, but his favorite, the older, Esau without his other son present. This was already against tradition, as we see later in Genesis, when Jacob blesses all of his sons at the same time in their presence. So it's already a faux pas to bless one son without the other son present, and much more for twins as well. He also seems to be doing this without the approval of his wife, Rebecca as she has other plans for this blessing. So then we see the scheming mother. Look with me in verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. So, it doesn't take long for Rebecca to come up with a scheme to thwart what his, her husband is trying to do. Involve her son in that scheme and put it into motion. It's almost as if she was ready for this moment. It's almost like she knew what her husband would be up to because she's listening in in the tent when Esau goes in to see his father. And she was already suspicious and had concocted a scheme to counter Isaac's secret plot. But Rebecca, she doesn't blink at this scheme against her husband who thinks he's on his deathbed. 
This doesn't mean anything to her. So then we keep going in verse 11. Look with me. Jacob said to his mother, to Rebekah, his mother, stop there. So Rebekah has just told her younger son, we're going to defraud your father out of this blessing. We're going to lie to him and scheme and get this blessing from him. And how might we expect Jacob to respond? Does he say, mother, how could you even think of such a thing? of defrauding your, fa- your husband and my father like this. This is evil, and it is not from the Lord, and you should be ashamed of yourself. No. He says, I already thought of that, but what if we get caught? Let's, let's read again, verse 11. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me. And I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. So Jacob says, Mom, that's a great idea. I already thought of that. And here's where it could go wrong. Jacob doesn't object to this conniving plan. He's only worried about the consequences. It's almost like Jacob and Rebekah are related, that they're cut from the same cloth. Where does Jacob get his schemes from? Well, it might be from both sides of the family who are plotting against each other. How does Rebekah respond to this? Verse 13, His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. So Rebekah says, Don't worry. Whatever the consequences are, I will take care of it. Do what I say. So Rebekah is fine putting her, only, her favorite son in harm's way, where he could be killed, or worse, cursed by the Lord. And why does she do this? So, some people argue, Rebecca is being righteous here. Rebecca knows the promise that God has given to her, and has said, this is the right son to be blessed. And when Jacob tries to go off and do his own thing, Rebecca says, no, this is what the Lord's supposed to do, so I'm going to scheme and do this. She orchestrates this thing to try to help God. God's will isn't going to happen, so she has to do a sinful scheme to fulfill God's promise. Some people say she really acted out of faith, but she did so in an immature and immoral way. But I really find this unconvincing. Let's... Look and skip towards the end of the chapter, the very last verse of chapter 27 and verse 46, and we read, Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? So it appears that fighting between daughters-in-law and mothers-in-law is ancient. Go figure, right? So, why does Scripture tell us that they were Hittite women? Well, to make a long story short, they're cursed. They come from the the line of Hath, who is from the line of Canaan, who is cursed by Noah. We don't have time to get into all that, but suffice it to say, they're cursed by the Lord. And Rebecca, I think, is not acting out of faith. She's acting out of self-preservation. 
She says, I want to protect my quality of life. If the son that I don't like, whose wives hate me, come into power, my life is going to be even worse than it is right now. I can't have that. So I'm going to make my younger son in power and receive the blessing. So she puts her trust in her favorite fill this scheme. So verse 14, we keep reading. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. So we've seen the sightless father. We've seen the scheming mother. And now we see the shifty younger brother. So the stage is set. Picture the scene. Jacob is standing outside of his father's tent. He's wearing his brother's robe, which is probably itchy and doesn't really fit. Because he's a smooth inside person, while Esau is an outside, probably more muscular hunter. So his skin feels weird because of this. Also, he's got goat's skin on his arms and on his neck. How did they attach them? I don't know. But I'm sure it wasn't comfortable, whatever it was. So he's uncomfortable in in Esau's garment. He's uncomfortable with goat's hair on his neck and on his arms. And he feels the warmth of the meal cooked for his father in his hands. And his mind probably flashes back to the last hot meal he had in his hands, which he also used to scheme against his older brother, Esau. And this same kind of thing, the same warm meal he's going to use again to defraud his father. One meal to trade for his brother's birthright, one meal to trade and scheme and defraud his father's blessing. He's got to be thinking to himself, I look ridiculous. (laughs) This is not going to work. But that is a fleeting thought to him. And he says, And he has the courage to go in and defraud his father. So we read in verse 18, So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? So we see Isaac recognizes Jacob's voice. Who are you? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Lie number one. I have done as you told me. Lie number two. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you've found this so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Lie number three. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy, 
like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Lie number four. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and he betrays his father with a kiss. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your sons, mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Jacob has no problem lying to his father verbally four times and using other deceptive means to get what he wants. He even goes so far to invoke the name of Yahweh to further his schemes. Jacob deceives his father with the garments of Isaac's favorite son and a goat. And this is something that we watch out for because one day Jacob and his sons will bring his favorite son's garment and the blood of a goat and deceive him. But Jacob does receive this blessing, which consists of, verse 28, a blessing of the promised land, material blessings. Verse 29, a blessing of dominance and kingdom. And verse 30, a blessing of divine protection and recalls the earlier promise made to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Jacob is going to great lengths to defraud his father. And it all seems to go according to plan. And we see the camera back out, and we see the whole encampment with many tents. And we see as soon as Jacob exits out one tent, we see another figure holding an animal going into a tent at the same time. So we've seen the sightless father, the scheming mother, the shifty younger brother, and now we see the seething older brother. As you hear this unfold, you move around in your seat because of the uncomfortability and the awkwardness that we're about to read. This has Michael Scott's tots level awkwardness going on here. If you're not familiar, this is a TV show about and a businessman offers a whole classroom of third graders. If you will graduate, I will pay for your college. And so they all work very hard and they're about to graduate. And it's time for this businessman to pay what he said he would pay them, except he's an idiot and a liar. And he thought he would be a millionaire by this time, and he would be easy to pay for these kids' college, and he's not. And so, ten years later, he goes into that classroom, and he says, so I know I said I would pay for your college, but I don't have that kind of money. So here is a laptop battery instead. 
You heard me. Not a laptop. A laptop battery. College tuition paid for. Laptop battery. It's awkward because you know they're going to be angry. And this has that level of unease. That level of pain as we read this story. Esau goes thinking he's going to receive a blessing. But it will never be. Let's read in verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. Seems Isaac is realizing what's happened. He first reacts violently that his will was not done. But as he's speaking, he realizes it was the Lord's will that was done. The Lord's will that was promised to him 40 plus years ago. And he seems to come to terms with that fact. But his elder son is another story. Let's keep reading in verse 34. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, But he said, Bless me, even me also, my father. Your brother, but he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. See, Isaac is not able to revoke the blessing that he gave to Jacob, because it was never his blessing to give away in the first place. It was the Lord's blessing and what the Lord has said, no one can revoke. Isaac does give a blessing, but as a, a commentary from Kent Hughes notes, 
It's really just an affirmation of the blessing to Jacob. Jacob says, you will have the fatness of the earth. And he says to Esau, you will be away from the fatness of the earth. Verse 40, you will be the servant of your younger brother who rules over you. And the second half of verse 40 says, you shall break his yoke. So really quickly, scholars believe this is a promise to Esau's descendants. Because one day, Israel is going to take control of the promised land. They are going to go into immoral decay. And the Edomites, or the people of Esau, will eventually break away from him. In 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 20 to 22. One commentary writes, this blessing to Esau is the reiteration of the blessing and it cements its certainty and underscores that its accomplishment is out of human hands. So he just says it the opposite way to affirm this is true and this is what's going to happen. Thus says the Lord. Now how would you feel if you were Esau? You went in thinking you were going to receive a blessing and it's not there. You went out and worked to go find something to cook for your father. And you've come back and he's already given it away because he's an old, senile man. Well, let's read. How does he respond? Verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Now Esau hates his brother and plans to kill him. This sounds eerily familiar, doesn't it? Can we think of another story where there was a blessing to a brother And the other brother was not blessed. And that brother was angry and he murdered his brother. Can we think of a story like that? That's right. Cain. Another story where two brothers, one receives favor, causing the other to uh, foster hatred and then commit murder. He sounds like Cain. He doesn't see this as an opportunity to repent or an opportunity to say, the Lord has blessed my brother. I will throw in my lot with him. I will be with him because he, if I bless him, I will be blessed. That's what the Lord said, no. He plans his own scheme to kill his brother once his father has died. A family of schemers. He also sounds like Lamech, who is in the descendants of Cain, who had two wives, was the first polygamist recorded in the Bible, was also a mass murderer. These are the people that Esau is connected to. He also takes women of a cursed family line by God, which brings 
only hatred and makes his mother's life miserable. She hates her life because of her daughters-in-law. This seems to connect Esau and Cain and Lamech were all seed of the serpent and they're ultimately against the Lord. What a dysfunctional family. What do we do with this story? Let's ask ourselves a question. Who is the good guy in this story? Really, who's the good guy? Kent Hughes summarizes this well in his commentary. This story was real life. Everyone in the story sinned. No one looked good. Not Isaac, not Rebecca, not Jacob, not Esau. The patriarch Isaac fought against God's word. The matriarch Rebecca, through her favorite son, attempted to manipulate life so as to ensure God's promise would actually happen. She and Jacob thought that God needed help, even if the help was dishonest and self-serving. Esau, the patriarch's favorite son, disregarded God's word and despised the promise. Everyone in the family sought the blessings of God without bowing the knee to God. This little family was fraught with ambition, jealousy, envy, lying, deceit, coveting, malice, manipulation, stubbornness, stupidity, and selfishness. And everyone lost. Rebecca was forced to send her favorite son off to a foreign land, and she would never see him again. Jacob was gone for 20 years, never saw his mother again. And he was afraid that he would be found out by his brother and murdered. Truly blind old Isaac had tossed a torch in his family's tents by fighting against God's word. And Esau, who despised his birthright, lost everything. So, there aren't any good guys in this story. Well, except for one. And that is our gracious and sovereign God. Because we see these two things about our God in this story. First, we see God's grace. No one in this family deserves blessing. All of them deserve punishment. Isn't that good news? Let me explain. If you are a sinner deserving of punishment, there's hope for you yet. If God can use this family, God can use you and your family. If God can bring Isaac, who is actively opposing God's will, to repentance, he will accept you when you repent. The Lord kept his promises even to this corrupt and deceitful family to provide a blessing so that eventually a Savior would come from them. God is faithful to keep his promises so that Jesus could be born and save us from our sins. Even sinful human beings who freely sin and oppose God's plan cannot stop it. 
praise God that even my stubborn sinfulness cannot thwart God's promises to those who repent and believe on Jesus. God does not give blessings to those who deserve it. He gives blessings to those who do not deserve it. Because He is gracious. God is gracious, but He's also sovereign. Sovereignty means that God has the power and the authority and the knowledge to do whatever He wants. Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. Adrian Rogers once said, Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? He's never taken by surprise on anything. God sits on the throne of the universe as king, and he has both the power and the authority to do whatever he wants. He also does that without violating human freedom. He didn't make anyone in this story do anything, but he used them to accomplish his purposes. These sinful people did what they wanted, and still God's promise was fulfilled. Hear this. Not even sin can thwart God's plan. We serve a mighty and powerful God that cannot be stopped. And this God that holds all authority and power and wisdom, He is good also. He is good and He is working to bring about your good. When our God makes promises, we can trust Him. When He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, we can trust Him. When He says He's near to the brokenhearted, we can trust Him. When He says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we can trust Him. When He says all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose, we can trust Him because He is sovereign and can do whatever He pleases from the throne of heaven. So quickly, how should we respond to this text? Number one, your sin cannot thwart God's sovereignty, but it can bring pain and brokenness. See, because God is sovereign and He will accomplish His purposes, that doesn't mean that you will not feel the consequences of your sin. Praise God, ultimately, if we put our hope and faith in Jesus, the ultimate consequences have been taken care of. But when you sin, you do not walk away scot-free. You feel the consequences of them. Isaac probably couldn't look at Esau the same ever again because of what happened. Rebecca and Isaac's marriage was probably never the same. Jacob was afraid for his life, not only when he fled away, but also when he was coming back. God's sovereignty is not a get-out-of-jail-free card to sin. God's sovereignty is a comfort to our soul that he is in control to deal with both the curse and the blessing, both punishment and grace. You cannot thwart God's, your sin cannot thwart God's sovereignty, but it will bring consequences. 
Number two, do you seek the blessing of God without bending your knee to God? What part of the sovereign plan of God in your life are you not okay with? What blessing from God are you trying to speed up and scheme to get what you think God owes you? God owes you nothing. He has given you everything, including His Son, Jesus Christ. When will we give up and acknowledge and trust that God knows what He's doing and He has your best interests at heart, even when you don't understand? It's tempting to be like Esau and lash out at others and at God when we feel like he doesn't give us what we want. We shake our fist at heaven and say, fine, you may not give me that thing that I want, but I'm going to go live how I want anyway. C.S. Lewis said there's two kinds of people in the world. Those, in the end, who say to God, thy will be done. Or those to whom God says in the end, your will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could not be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, the doors opened. End quote. Do you seek the blessing of God without bending your knee to Him? God's number three, God's blessings only come from His grace. Some of you relate to this story. You see parts of your family here. You don't have a great relationship with your mother-in-law. You have strife between you and your siblings. You have unresolved hurt in your marriage. You do drive your in-laws insane. And because of that, you don't think you deserve God's love because of all the hurt that you may have caused and you feel in your heart. I want to remind you, you're right. You don't deserve God's love. And that's not the qualifier to receive it. God gives us what we do not deserve. And nothing can make you more or less undeserving of God's love. In the same way, you should love your family because God has sovereignly placed you in your family for a purpose, to be a light for Him and to extend His grace. But some of you don't identify with this story. You say, yeah, there might be other people like that, but I'm not like that. I'm not a sinner. I do not scheme against God. You think, I'm better than these people. And unlike others, I really do deserve God's grace because I'm a good person. My friend, the Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death, that there is no one who pleases God. There are none who are righteous. No, not one. That includes you and that includes me. If you believe you deserve God's blessing, I pray 
that God would give you the blessing of conviction of sin, that he would open your eyes so that you can see that you need a Savior and he has provided one for you. I pray that we would realize our God is gracious and our God is sovereign and he deserves our submission and our love and our adoration and our praise. So in response to this, would you acknowledge that God is sovereign and look at your life? In what ways are you not acknowledging and accepting that God is sovereign in your life? Two, accept God's grace. It is not pious of you to reject God's grace because you think you are undeserving. We are all undeserving. Run to him. Will you bow the knee to our gracious and sovereign God today? Let's pray.